2 Timothy chapter 2, and this evening we'll be in verses 20 through 26. Verse 20 through the end of the chapter. Now, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach and patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Lord, we know that even as you've written these words by inspiration, through the Apostle Paul, that these words still apply even to us here today. And as we read these texts, we can find in there so much truth for us to hear and to pray concerning our own lives as well. Ultimately, Lord, the reason we want to do that is because it clearly glorifies you. Here in this passage, we see you laying out for us through the Apostle Paul's words the way in which one might be pleasing to you. Walking in your sight in a way that you accept and that is worthy in your sight, Lord. Lord, you've saved us and you've cleansed us and you've atoned for our sins and you already do know the end from the beginning we're fully aware lord but as we live this life we pray for your spirit to strengthen to guide and to lead so that we might as romans 12 says live lives as an acceptable sacrifice because that's our reasonable worship so lord as we read these texts here tonight and we Study and meditate upon them. Lord, may we be moved in that way. That we might be people who are offering ourselves up as the living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, just backing up just a little bit. Paul, remember, wanted Timothy, we looked at last week, to remind the church of all of the truths concerning the gospel and to keep reminding them. Even though they're established in them, they're rooted in them, yet they are to keep on believing, hearing, walking in. It should be what it, you know they're saturated with. I love that word, right? 
You know, it's, it's kind of icky when you think about the sponge on your sink because <laughs> you know it's saturated, right? And you squeeze it and it comes. But that's a good word. We should, and I think we want to be so saturated with the gospel that that's our very being. It's like when our resting mind thinks, we go to our sin in the gospel. We go to our need for God and our great joy that we have in him. So Paul says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. Don't be one who's caught up with unprofitable speech or babble, but instead present yourselves to God as workers who don't need to be ashamed. These other people have swerved from the truth because they're already teaching false truths that are taking some away from the simple truth of the gospel. The Lord knows those who are his. And so he, in light of that admonition, gives this wonderful illustration. He says, now, in a great house, not only are there vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for a dishonorable use. Now, Paul has used this same illustration twice before, but with both of those times different meanings. Okay? The first one comes in the book of Corinthians when he's talking and teaching about how that we, as believers in Christ, and then become ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says that we have in these clay pots, these privy pots, these earthen vessels, a treasure And that's the truth of Jesus Christ. The gospel is hidden in vessels of dishonorable use, as it were. But because they contain the gospel, they all of a sudden become ones of honorable use. Things of glory. Now Paul uses, again, this illustration, but again in a different way in Romans chapter 9. You remember in Romans 9, he talks about how in reference to the elect and the non-elect, God has shown mercy on some and not mercy on some. God has shown favor to some and hardened some. And the whole argument there in Romans 9 is he has every right to do that. And then he gets, as he's beginning to end the argument there, he gives this illustration where he says, he, God has the same lump of clay as it were. And God has the right to choose with that clay that he's going to take part of it and make a vessel for honorable use and take it and make a vessel for dishonorable use. And that's the way it is with those who are the Lord's. Pardon me, which is what we looked at last week. When he says, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. God knows who are his. He has made them earthen vessels, so, or he has made them honorable vessels. So when Paul uses this illustration here, we might be inclined to go back and look at one of those other two uses of this illustration. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. First of all, he says just previously, the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So he's continuing that thought of those who are the Lord's are those who need to depart from iniquity. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the word iniquity, it means sin. 
unrighteousness, that which the Lord commands us not to do, those things that are unfavorable and pleasing to God that bring harm and destruction upon us and our own soul. And so when he says, everyone who names the name of the Lord and those who name the name of the Lord are the elect because he says, the Lord knows those who are his just before that. So in a gray house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, in a couple of the places that I was studying in this week, this section right here is taken as an a analogy for salvation. That you, by nature, are just a dishonorable vessel. You're a vessel, God made you, but you are dishonorable on your own. And therefore, you must cleanse yourself from unrighteousness. You must cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Well, the problem with that is verse 22 assumes that the person who Paul is writing to and speaking to and illustrating is already a Christian. Look at verse 22. So, in light of that illustration... Flee youthful passions. You hear the argument? In a great big house, there are lots of different vessels. Some are silver, some are gold, some are honorable. Some are clay, some are wood, some are dishonorable. So if you are to be a honorable vessel, you must cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. So Paul, in speaking to Timothy, right? Paul thinks Timothy's a Christian. He's not trying to get, this isn't an evangelistic gospel tract from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul is totally assuming that he is a born-again Christian here. So therefore, he's talking about not anyone in general who exists and breathes on the face of the globe, but anyone who is in Christ, anyone who is the one of the, those who the Lord knows, anyone who, lets, who, uh, who loves the name of the Lord and should depart from iniquity. So it's any of those people should pursue this type of lifestyle and this type of action. This is why for us, we can read this here and it's very easy for, I mean, we already have this aversion and recoil from works righteousness, Right? A, a righteousness that comes from your works. Your righteousness doesn't come from anything you do, anything you don't do. Your righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone. That's where your righteousness comes from. Because he already died and atoned for your sins. In light of that, we desire to live as if that were true. We live believing those truths. We live by faith, right? Just shall live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. So I walk and I live by faith in that truth that Christ has already atoned for my sins. My righteousness is his righteousness. So what I do now in living out my life is I believe that truth and I strive to live consistently with that truth. So I try to become more like Christ. 
I try to live more like him. I try to become more like my Savior. Sometimes I do okay, sometimes not so much. But all in all, I strive to live in light of that truth of the gospel. So what I am doing as I'm living in light of that truth, the big fancy word is sanctification, right? And what sanctification means is, and technically it means set apart or holy, but we can certainly see it being helpfully defined as I'm becoming more like Jesus. And so slowly and surely I'm loving him more and I'm becoming more like him. So if anyone who is born again, who is of the elect, cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, pursues sanctification, you become an honorable vessel for use. You can, you, you know, can be a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, but if you're in sin, walking in sin, you're, you're struggling with certain things, then ministry is probably not the best place for you to be. <laughs> whether it's teaching or preaching or whether it's, you know, working with the kids or whether whatever it is, if you're in sin, ministry is not the best place for you to be. Those who are striving and working towards holiness and righteousness, those are the vessels that are for honorable use. And so that's what we want as believers. So the encouragement to Timothy, who's the pastor, is to flee youthful passions. That is encouraging to me, and I, golly, I hope it is for you. Because if Timothy needed to hear this word, Timothy's like, he's got two books with his name on it. Right? He's one, he's one of the A-listers when it comes to New Testament stuff. Maybe a B-lister. I don't know. But he's pretty important when it comes to New Testament history and understanding. This guy's he's pastoring the church of Ephesus, for goodness sake. No small church. And yet Paul has to write to him and tell him, flee youthful passions. Keep on keeping on. Keep on walking with him. Keep on cleansing yourself from that which is dishonorable. He assumes that it's going to be lifelong. He's not suggesting that you're going to arrive someday and you will have cleansed it all away and now you are an honorable vessel. He's saying the one who cleanses himself is the one who is honorable. Now, flee youthful passions. Timothy here, we've talked about it. He's at his oldest, probably in his early, mid-30s maybe, but probably more like late 20s, early 30s where he's at right here. So youthful passions. Now immediately, our minds, because of the phraseology here, is going to go to something sexual or something lusting, that kind of thing. I don't, I'm not saying that's not a part of it, but I don't think that's exclusively what Paul's getting at here. I, I think that he's simply saying that, it, you know, when, when, when John talks about in 1 John, he says that there are young, you know, babes in Christ, young men in Christ, and old men in Christ. And he makes this distinction between them. And right after doing that, he talks about there being only a few things, three things, in fact, that are in the world. Meaning that even though you're a young person, and a middle-aged or, you know, whatever Christian or an older Christian, there are three things that are going to assail you. There's my new King James coming out. 
So I'm not exactly sure what it says in ESV, even though I read it just a little bit ago. (laughs) But I know it's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, because that's how I memorized it in my New King James. So that's what we're going to go with. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I think that if they're youthful passions or elderly passions, they're baby passions or they're middle-aged passions, whatever the passions are, they're going to fall in one of those three categories to one degree or another. The lust of the flesh, first of all, is those things that assail us fleshly. Now, this is where we would immediately think, well, this is sexual temptation, certainly. But there's other temptations that come along with our flesh as well. In fact, if you remember in the temptations of Christ, we know that he was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin, right? We just went through Hebrews. That's in Hebrews 4. So he was tempted according to the flesh. Now, we don't know necessarily if that was like, you know, one of those instances like where a woman was brought to him or whatnot. But we certainly can find him being tempted in a way that's according to the flesh in Matthew chapter 4. The very first thing Satan comes at him with when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness is, Hey, Jesus, you're God, right? Wow, big God. You're so hungry, though. You're just sitting out here in the desert. Why don't you turn these stones into bread and eat them? Right? You see, Satan was appealing to Christ's flesh. I'm thankful Christ was a perfect man because he can be tempted in that way and atone for my sins of the flesh as well. You see, if Christ was only God and had just like, as it were, zipped on a human suit or floated around like a ghost, like some people would say, or he was an angel that just came down and looked like a man or whatever nonsense people say oftentimes about Jesus, he wouldn't have been able to suffer this kind of temptation for my place, in my place, He had to be perfectly a man so that he could atone for the sins that I commit in the flesh because he was tempted with those sins and yet he remained steadfast when I falter and when I fail. So that sin right there was a sin, pardon me, not that sin, that temptation to sin was a temptation of the lust of the flesh. Christ, you're hungry. Why don't you turn these rocks into bread? And remember Christ's answer. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God. That's where our livelihood comes from. The second thing is, let's flesh lust of the eyes. The desire for things. To be fulfilled. Uh, It's it's a wanting, a fulfillment. It's it's the, the 10th commandment, isn't it? You shall not covet. And then all the stuff is listed there at the end of that. But you shall not covet. And so what is Christ offered with in terms of coveting? Satan comes to him and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything. I will fulfill that desire that you came. You, you want these kingdoms there. You want them to be yours. You're king of kings and lord of lords, right? Instead... He says, no, because I will not bow down and worship you. You shall worship alone the Lord your God. Satan then tempts him and takes him up onto the pinnacle of the tabernacle. 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and finally the pride of life, the arrogance, the haughtiness that comes with just being a human, the feeling that we are better than we ought to, thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. And Satan says, if you're really God, why don't you cast yourself down off the temple and show everybody who you actually are? Because the Bible says, right? You want to talk about you're quoting scripture to counter me. Well, the Bible says the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. course Christ will have none of it he trusts himself to the Lord God trusts himself to his father rather than submitting to that temptation as well now we know that none of us you know there, there's the little pins and things that were popular what like 15 maybe 12 years ago, maybe longer, I don't know, that said WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? I I mean, that's kind of helpful, but the reality is, is when are you ever going to be tempted like that? You don't have no demons showing up telling you turn rocks into bread. Satan ain't taking you up on the highest, you know, point around and saying jump off. He's not offering any of you or me the kingdoms of the world if we'll just bow down and worship him. So we, as it were, although we know we are not tempted in those exact specific same ways, we're thankful that Christ was because that's where our redemption lies. But secondly, we know that many youthful passions are going to come and assail us and we can be confident that we can stand just like Christ did as we stand upon the word of God. So whatever youthful passions that they are that we have, whether it's ambition or whether it's something sexual or whether it's a love of disputes or being impatient or a desire for things that is unhealthy, these youthful passions we need to flee from, run away from them. Sometimes it requires physically getting away from certain things and certain situations and circumstances. But we need to flee these youthful passions and pursue, instead, run after righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. First thing, really quick. This is not super-Christianity. This is not like next level believer, right? This is not carnal Christian becoming a spiritual Christian, to use the, I think, errored vernacular of some people. This is just typical Christianity. Look what it says. Pursue four things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. So just along with the other Christians, this is just what's expected of believers, that we're going to do these kind. we're going to do this. He's saying to Timothy, you're not some super special uber position, you're just, I'm just calling you to do the things any believers ought to be doing. Any believer ought to be following these things and trying to pursue them. So righteousness. Now, I said in the beginning, our righteousness is in Christ. 
So how do we pursue righteousness if my righteousness is already in Christ? Well, that's a good question. What we want to do is what Christ called us to do. The way we pursue righteousness is we read passages like Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, you know, the Sermon on the Mount there. We read the Olivet Discourse. We read, you know, the, the passages there at the end of the book of John. In fact, we'll look at the end of John 15 or beginning of John 15 here in just a few minutes, maybe, Lord willing. But we're to pursue righteousness and pursue those things that the Lord has called us to do. One of the things that we see is the apostles pick up on this truth and they live like this throughout the book of Acts. At least they try to. And then we're taught these things in the epistles. So if we're going to pursue righteousness, what we want to do is see Jesus commanding and calling us to do them. The apostles living out that kind of life. And then the epistles teaching us and expanding upon those things that we've seen taught by Christ and lived out by the apostles. So that's why we spend so much time reading and studying the scriptures like this, because we really want to pursue righteousness and we want to pursue Christ. Pursue faith. Faith is something, as a funeral arranger now, I have seen many Christians come through my doors and seen their beloved ones pass. And in sitting there and in talking with them, understanding that that person who just died was a Christian. The person who's sitting across from me had professed Christ for many years. And now here in this moment of having your closest partner pass away, they're saying, I, what do I do? How do I know they're with Jesus? You know, I remember one couple in particular, and I'm up in paradise, and I'm sitting across the table from this guy, and, and he, he's just weeping, and he's telling me this story about how they had been involved in their church for their entire marriage, all kinds of things. They had been doing all kinds of things with kids and with adults and all over the place, and here in this moment of grief and despair, he's really genuinely questioning all things that he's professed and believed his entire life. I don't think this guy, you know, was damned all along and it's just now coming out or something like that. What I'm saying, and I think the point is, is that even as long as we live faithfully throughout our lives, it's still faith. It's still something we don't see. It's still a Jesus without skin on. Until he comes again, And until we see the kingdom come, we live by faith. And we have to work at that. It does not come naturally. The default you wants to fall back into unbelief. The default you wants to fall back into despair and uncertainty. The default you does not want to pursue faith. It's the spiritual you, the born again you that does. That's why you need to do this and work at it and pursue it. That's why it's so important that we read our Bibles, that we pray, that we serve one another. It's why the means of grace are so important. And coming to the Lord's table is so valuable. O'Brien, he wouldn't mind me sharing this, I know. He just, you know... A couple of weeks ago, went to this church and was going to decide if this is where, you know, they wanted to go to. And they, he wasn't allowed to come to the Lord's table. 
Because in that church, they want to make sure that only believers are partaking of the Lord's table. So he was asked to not partake. And he said he was grieved. It was hard for him in that moment to not partake, to see it right there and to know the means of grace and to know what this means for the believer and to not be able to take it. But in this, you know, to honor the church that he was in, he didn't partake. And, and I, I think of it, it just reminds me of the fact that the means of grace are so vital because they strengthen our faith in God and in Christ. The less you practice the means, the more likely you're going to be to be weak in your faith, discouraged, and maybe outright have a difficult time believing certain things. In love, we have been called to love. Love is, now I don't mean some ishy, squishy, (laughs) puppy dog kind of thing. I mean a deliberate choice that because Christ has done this work for me and has chosen to love me, therefore I choose to love other people. And it might be despite their deserving of that love. It might not actually deserve it at all. But I'm to pursue love, and that means that I'm to pursue to look at everyone as if Christ loves them and died for them who are in the church. Those who are outside the church, I love them by declaring to them the gospel. It's probably going to be uncomfortable for them. Jesus said that the world hated me and they're going to hate you many times. There in the book of John in chapter 16 specifically. But many times he said that. And we need to be mindful of that. But the way we show love to the world is by sharing the gospel ultimately with them. The way we show love to one another is we treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. And peace. Now, peace is interesting because he's going to talk about controversies here in a minute. And it seemed like there was some pretty serious controversies going on in Ephesus. And if you've ever been in a church where controversies like the fabric of the congregation, you know how vital a word like this is, peace. And if you've never been involved in that kind of congregation, praise God. (laughs) Praise the Lord that you haven't had to endure such difficulty and hostility. But they're out there, those churches. Pursue peace. Christ has died to break down the wall of separation that existed between Jew and Gentile so that he might make of those two one people the kingdom of God. If Christ broke down that wall of separation that existed between us, then we ought to not be re-erecting walls within the church unnecessarily between other believers. So these four ways, this is just the way a normal Christian should live. And so then apart from that, he goes on to say, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies, you know, They breed quarrels. Now, first thing, there are some good controversies, right? Not all controversies bad. Acts chapter 15 is a great example. Galatians chapter 2 is another great example. 
In Acts chapter 15, you remember that the issue there was that Paul had come back from his first missionary journey, and there were some believing, supposedly, Pharisees who had come into the midst of the congregation, and they were saying that if you're going to become a Christian, you still needed to be circumcised. And Paul was saying no and not having any of it, anything of it. And so this controversy arose, and it was going to destroy the fabric of the church because the gospel was at stake, right? Because what was being said is the gospel itself isn't enough. You need the gospel plus circumcision. And so the controversy broke out and it was a good fight to have because the gospel was what was at stake. Of course, you know, they resolved it by saying the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, but they certainly do need to follow the teachings of Christ and follow the things that he said, along with certain other regulations as well. In Galatians chapter 2, you remember that Paul was eating in a place with Barnabas And there was some Gentile believers and apparently some other Jewish believers. And then when some people came from James in Jerusalem and sat down to eat, Peter got up and left the eating with the Gentiles and went over and ate with the Jews. Now you think, well, that's not a big deal, right? They had a potluck and some other people showed up and you're like, hey, some old buddies from Jerusalem. And you go over and you eat with them. What's wrong with that? Well, In doing that, what was being said is that there was still a wall of division between us, a Jew-Gentile division. And so the gospel, again, was at stake. And Paul had to go and confront Peter and say, what are you doing? You don't do this kind of stuff. We're together. We're united in Christ now. We're believing in him. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. We're all one in Christ. So why do you as a Jew get up and go over and eat with other Jews? Why don't you bring them over to eat with the Gentiles? Now, that's my paraphrase, but that's what's going on. And the gospel was at stake once again. So there are certain controversies that are good. So what controversies are he ta- is he talking about here? Well, here he says here, ignorant controversies. These are ones... I'm going to say they're not gospel issues. Now, there are some real important controversies, right? Like, let's say, uh, uh, congregationalism versus elder rule. That's that's an important discussion to have. You know, with the Lord's Supper, intinction, right? Taking the bread and dipping it in the wine versus the way we do it, where you take the wine and the bread separately. Those are important discussions to have. But those shouldn't be gospel dividing controversies. Those aren't things we need to go to war over. Those are things we can have strong feelings and convictions about. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're brethren with those who are elder rule. We're brethren with those who do perform intinction when they do the Lord's Supper. We're even brethren with those who believe in the pre-trib rapture of the church. <laughs> Some churches, that's a big ignorant controversy. But they breed quarrels, and you get it. Those things breed quarrels. But the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Meaning, I'm not looking to pick a fight. as As a pastor, over the years, I'll be honest, there's been difficulty in, you know, you hear somebody say something and discerning 
how deep of an issue is this? So there are some people that I will get right into things with and debate and discuss. And there are certain things and issues that I have learned over the years that just you need to let go. You need to just, just let them go. That I am not everybody's Holy Spirit. My job is to preach the word and allow the Holy Spirit to apply to your lives. And so if you're holding a certain truth that I would say maybe isn't scriptural, but at the same time, I don't think it is a gospel issue, meaning that we're not dividing our, you know, you're not saying I'm unsaved for it and I'm not saying the same. It, just let it go, Pat. Let the word do its work as it's preached. That's hard. But in light of doing that, what we're called to do, what I'm called to do is be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, being kind to everyone. I I like how he includes kind of the gambit here, right? Kind to everyone, meaning people in the church, people outside, you're just kind because there are certain people you're going to disagree with in the church and outside. Just be kind to people, Pat. Be kind to people. Able to teach, be ready to give instruction if instruction is needed. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, in light of this, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So as we're not quarrelsome people, as I'm not a quarrelsome person, but I'm kind, I'm able to teach, I'm patiently enduring evil, being willing to correct opponents with gentleness, all the while I'm praying that the Lord would correct that. Now here, it certainly seems like he goes right to the nth degree and says, you know, these people have been ensnared by the devil, captured by him to do his will. And the immediately thought is, good night, these guys aren't even saved. Well, that's probably true for a lot of people. And we do know that God's the only one who grants repentance. It doesn't come on your own. You can't, as an unbeliever, we can't just go out there and assume people have the ability to repent in and of themselves. God has to grant it, just like he has to grant faith. We don't have it on our own. But remember, Jesus even had to say to Peter one time, when Peter rebuked the Lord about going to the cross, he said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. We just looked a couple weeks ago that if you deny God, God will deny us. And Peter was one of those people who did deny Christ, but even there was grace for him. So what am I saying here? What I'm saying is we want God to grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth for everybody. So even if it's me and Joel talking, I'm pretty sure Joel's saved. (laughs) Joel is pretty sure I'm saved. We love each other dearly as brethren within the church so much. But sometimes we disagree and we'll pray for God to grant repentance to each other because either we're both wrong and we both need to repent or one of us is wrong and one of us needs to repent, right? So it's not, a, it's not a bad thing to pray this for somebody or hope that we can teach one another and there, there come actual repentance. That's a good thing within the context of the church. And then even further than that, if they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, if they're unbelievers and they're bringing in false heresies, we certainly want to see them saved as well. 
And so the means by which we do that is we come to them being kind, able to teach, patiently enduring, and correcting opponents with gentleness. Teaching with gentleness, being kind, and enduring whatever evil hostility comes against us. In doing this, we pray, Lord, may you grant them repentance. So certainly this is true for the believer, right? Nobody's denying that. I hope you don't hear that. But what I hope you also hear is that it all even more applies to the unbeliever. Because they have definitely been captured by him to do his will. And so we want believer and unbeliever alike. That means we need to come and treat people in the same way. Now I might treat my brother or sister in Christ a little differently than I would the unbeliever. I might say different things. I might be more strategic in what I say in different situations and circumstances. But all the while, all in all, what we want to do is be kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and pray that God grants repentance. You see, in living this kind of way, as we pursue these positive attributes, what's going to happen is we're going to become more inclined to be kind, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil, and gently correcting those who oppose the faith, whether they're in the church or outside of the church. Because all in all, we want to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ, to see his kingdom advance, and us as his people grow in his grace and in the knowledge of him.